live from Lane County, Oregon, it's the Bose No Show with your host, West Lane County Commissioner Jay Bosevich. And now, here's Jay. And good evening, and welcome to another edition of the Bose Nose Show here on KRBN Internet Radio. And if you want to get in on the show, you just have to dial 646-721-9887 and just press 1. Or you can send us an email at talk at krbnradio.net. And today is a free-for-all day, seeing that we had a guest um, the last couple of weeks, and I'm planning on a guest for next week. It, it's been a while since we've had a free-for-all where you get to uh, pick the topics or I just ramble on for about an hour. Uh, so give us a call, and, and you can send this show in any direction you want it to go. But, you know, there's a few things that have been in the news lately, and, and, I, and I forgot to mention that we are live from downtown Elmira, Oregon, uh, here in another beautiful day in the Pacific Northwest. And we've got one of those Simpson skies going on today. And I don't know if any of you are fans of the Simpsons, but the uh, Matt Gronig, who actually created the Simpsons, uh, lived in Springfield, Oregon, here not too far away. And and if you the very first part of the Simpsons where it goes the Simpsons, and the sky there has you know it's perfect blue with the clouds going off into the horizon that are all about the same size and shape. That sky happens in Oregon all the time we refer to it as the simpsons sky my wife and i and that's what kind of day we're having today but in the news it's hard to not hear something about hillary clinton classified information emails or fbi i mean it's just everywhere it's, i mean blanketing everything so i'll spend a few minutes talking about um the FBI's investigation and the director's uh, press conference yesterday and his decision not to recommend prosecution, which is interesting because I don't ever remember, you know, having been associated with municipal and county um, law enforcement for quite a while as a commissioner and just around politics. I don't ever remember the the law enforcement investigation side of of our legal structure ever being the ones that decide on prosecute, no prosecute. I always understood that it was the prosecutors that made that decision. <laughs> and if it was questionable, then they would pull in a grand jury and ask the grand jury whether they should prosecute or not. It's the first time I've heard of the, the law guy, like a sheriff or a chief of police, saying, "Eh, we did an investigation, and we're not going to we're not going to pursue it, um, and we're and we're we're not going to recommend charges." I usually hear that from the district attorney's office, you know, or the attorney general's office. I don't usually hear it from the law enforcement guy, so it was a little bit of an odd um, uh, decision on his part in that way. But what was fascinating, and I, and I had a friend on Facebook uh, bring this up, so I have to give David Bacon Gulliver full credit for this. And no, Bacon's not his real middle name, but you have to know David to understand why that's his, his, his Facebook uh, name. But he uh, brought up the whole speech in Julius Caesar by, by Shakespeare um, of Mark Antony. You know, friends, Romans, and countrymen, lend me your ears. Everybody remember that one? Um, it was where the conspirators that killed Caesar uh, had decided that they were going to put Mark Antony up to uh, speak, kind of, and it was, and they thought they were gonna, he was going to speak on behalf of the conspirators. But what he did was deliver a speech that laid out all of Caesar's good things he did at the same time kind of faintly praising the conspirators and putting it, you know, while not calling, you know, calling for, for, uh, you know, condemning the conspirators, he put enough doubt in the minds of the people. They eventually revolted against the current government. Uh, it was, 
you know, one of Shakespeare's best pieces of, of writing he ever did. And it kind of like Comey seemed to do that exact same thing where he got out there and was and at the very end said, I don't recommend charging. But he laid out the case for charging Hillary Clinton through the whole first part of his, his speech. Exactly how often she, she uh, you know, the number of emails that, that were considered to be classified, the number of top secret ones, the fact that there were seven email chains that, that, that were, were highly classified at the highest levels, uh, and just the, the whole you know, thing from multiple servers that were used, not just the one that everybody you know, thinks about in our New York mansion uh, that's somewhere in the basement bathroom or something like that. It, it was actually multiple versions of that, uh, multiple uh, handheld devices after Hillary claiming the reason she did the private email thing was because she only wanted to have one device and she was actually using multiple devices it, it, to the point where some of the, the talk radio hosts that have a little bit more uh, technological um, savvy than I do put together a a back and forth between Hillary Clinton and James Comey where it was Hillary Clinton's interviews from the last couple of years about this whole email thing, where Clinton says, I did not email any classified material to anyone on my email, and there is no classified material. That was a news conference in March of 2015. And then they would play Comey saying that they identified at least 113 emails that were passed through the Clinton server that contained classified material <laughs> right after that. And they would go back to Clinton saying that, they, that she turned over all the work emails, and then they go to Comey saying they found thousands of work emails that hadn't been turned over. And then her saying that she did this because she only wanted to have one device, and then we go back to Comey saying that she actually used multiple devices. And it was just, it, you know, how can you believe a word Hillary Clinton says from this day forward if they continue to play that tape? You know, if I was Donald J. Trump, uh, and and wanting to be president, I would get the 60-second version of that tape, cut it down, and I would have it played over and over and over again on every television and radio station I could think of between now and, and November. You know, just the, the back and forth between the two of Hillary telling the lie and Comey basically making, you know, telling the fact that, that betrayed the lie. Because it just it is incredible that she stood in front of the public and made those claims, and she had to know. Because he basically said, you know, that that it was obvious that they were they were classified materials, but she didn't do it intentionally. That's probably the biggest discussion on radio and and the news and editorial pages today was whether she did it intentionally and, and rose to the level of gross negligence because in our espionage um, and, and the, the, the thing they can trip you up for for a felony is if you, have, if you reveal classified materials through gross negligence. So the question is, is wanton, wantonly reckless or whatever the term was that Comey used, does that rise to gross negligence? So I'd be interested in hearing some other people's views on this. If you want to give me a call at 646-721-9887 and just press one to let us know you want to get in on the conversation. Um, or you can email me at talk at krbnradio.net. And you don't, and you can email me between shows too, if you'd like. So I, I appreciate the emails and, you know, suggestions for guests or topics or whatever. But, you know, that's really been the big news the last couple of days. Interesting, it's coming down, when it's coming down, you know, uh, one of the things I always look at, you know, having been involved um, in politics for a fairly long time, having helped run several campaigns and then having to run campaigns myself, is there things about the news cycle you do and don't, you know, and kind of, you know, when's time to put out bad news? The weekend of a national holiday and a national holiday week, that's when you want to bury a bad news story. So even though Comey kind of may have done his Mark Antony invitation, um, it, it's, it's interesting 
that uh, it was the Monday after July, I mean, the Tuesday after July 4th. You know, so Tuesday morning, people are still hungover. They're up way too late because their neighbors were setting off illegal fireworks next door. They missed the morning shows and all that stuff. Um, it's still, you know, they're off on vacation. They're still camping in the woods somewhere. There's going to be a lot of America that in two weeks, three weeks from now, yeah, did you hear the, the uh, James Comey's remarks in, about Hillary? And they'll be like, no. So you wonder if the timing is interesting. And then the whole timing, the breaking of the story about uh, Bill Clinton getting on the airplane with Loretta Lynch coming on basically the Friday before a three-day weekend, which is another time that if you're going to bury news, you always want to do is, is any three-day weekend, put it somewhere either that right before and by the time the three-day weekend is over, it's kind of out of the news cycle. If you want something to live in the news cycle, like if you're trying to you know, make sure um, a piece of good news gets that, you usually release it on a non-holiday week on a Tuesday so it can get repeated on Wednesday and Thursday if possible. So uh, you know, a, as a student of politics and, and the news media, um, when you see things happen right around the national holiday in, in the news, you have to wonder about whether there was intent in the timing of the release of that information and, and whether it was intended to make it have the least possible impact. Uh, so it's kind of, kind of interesting to, to see if, if, you know, history and time will tell whether, you know, James Comey, did, what, did he feel forced to come out and do that press conference on Tuesday because of the, 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 the Bill and Loretta plane show last week? Um, or was it done because it was a holiday week and most of America is out, you know, on their family vacations, uh, not paying attention to the news very much? I mean, all you have to do is look at the newspaper on Tuesday and look how thin it was to realize what a slow news day that is. Um, so it's interesting. Uh, and, uh, you know, one of the things that's going on in, in our country, it sure breeds distrust, though, because you have to look at, um, you know, the standards uh, of what rises to at least going to a trial and you would think that, that what Director Comey outlined yesterday rose to the level of getting to trial and then having to, you know, beyond reasonable doubt, prove guilt. But there is definitely reasonable doubt there to go to trial, if you ask me. And I, I, I'm a little bit surprised at his decision, um, particularly in reading intent to some of the law that doesn't even speak to intent. Um, I'm sure that um, General Petraeus would like to have that same sort of rosy um, look at, at, at our uh, laws in his case, where he got uh, basically busted for something very similar in giving classified information to his girlfriend in, to, to write his autobiography. But, you know, there, there you can pretty much say he had, you know, he knowingly did that. I'm, I, I have a hard time saying that Hillary Clinton didn't knowingly do what she did and then knowingly lied about it to the nation in, in press conferences and, and national interviews. You know, that, that's the amazing thing to me. You know, 30 years ago, you'd be dead as a politician to be caught so publicly in a lie. You know, I, you know, and, and even think back further, a little bit further and, and for you know, those of you that are younger than 60, and for me, you know, I'm just a little bit shy of 60 myself, so I have memory of this partly because my dad covered the Watergate hearings for CBS News on the radio. So I was pretty plugged into Watergate even as a young kid. Um, but, you know, two of Nixon's folks resigned because you know, he was trying to force them to kind of do what Comey did, which is to, to recommend no charges. They were going to recommend charges, the special prosecutors, and he had them, you know, they quit or fire, got fired, you know, that whole, you know, thing there. What happened to those public servants like that? You know, what happened to the integrity? And that was a Republican administration that those guys 
quit or got fired rather than compromise and, and, and kind of, uh, she didn't really intend to, to expose classified information to our foreign enemies on her unprotected email server uh, that had less protection than Gmail. Uh, but she did, yeah. But we're okay with it. We're not going to press charges. Um, just is one of those things that, that I, I shake my head that, you know, 40 years ago, we had a president resign over probably less than what Hillary Clinton clearly guilty of here, at least of, of lying to the, the public. And, and she's clearly guilty of at least having classified material outside of where she was supposed to have it. And, and, and all I have to think is, you know, speaking of something that probably the millennials can't remember is Sandy Pants Burglar, um, you know, <laughs> who, uh, was, you know, one of those, um, you know, one of those characters from the Clinton administration that uh, basically, uh, you know, one of those uh, characters back in the Clinton administration that, that he went into the archives, National Archives, and walked out with a bunch of information on the Clintons hidden in his pants. And that was all kind of overlooked as he was absent-minded with documents. You know, no, Sandy, he's just, you know, that's the way he is. Um, and here we are again. Oh, it's just, you know, Clinton was just being a little bit reckless. That's all. So, um, you know, it's really uh, one of those things that just kind of gets uh, a little crazy here. So again, if you want to get in on the conversation, you know, you can uh, dial us in at uh, 646-721-9887. And I am going to bring uh, my producer on, Robin, here for a second, because I am having a little bit of trouble getting to my email, but I understand she's got an email there that someone sent in, and maybe she can uh, read part of it or paraphrase it for me so I can uh, respond to it. Sure thing, Jay. Uh, this, this, one, this email comes from Terry, and it says, uh, yesterday we had a meeting with the Forest Service here in Mapleton concerning the Indian Creek Management Project. Ranger Michael Holman Jones stated that 50% of all Forest Service timber sales in Lane County were traditional sales, as in not stewardship sales, and that 25% of those traditional sales go to the county. She said, I don't know what your county commissioners are doing with the money or something close to that. So the question that uh, Terry is asking is, where can we find the actual numbers on the Forest Service timber sales to verify what Ranger Jones was saying. Sure, and, and by the way, it's Michelle, not Michael. Uh, <laughs> might just be a spelling thing, because um, I, I know Michelle. Um, well, and Michelle, they're close. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so we'll get Michelle straight. And, and Terry, thank you for the email. Um, yeah, there is there is a small portion of Forest Service uh, sales that do do go non-stewardship. Um, and for those that, that don't know what she's talking about, um, U.S. Forest Service, uh, when they do um, a timber sale, can do it either as a standard sale or they can do it as a stewardship sale. A stewardship sale allows the Forest Service to keep the, the proceeds from that sale and then spend it within the district on, on um, stewardship projects, which usually means staff, but that, that's beside the point, um, but it avoids them having to, to go back to the, the, the laws that say they have to share 50% um, of, of standard timber receipts with the schools and the counties. So, you know, normally in a standard timber sale, Forest Service gets to keep half, the schools get 25%, and the county gets 25%. In a stewardship, the Forest Service keeps 100%, but they're supposed to spend it on improving the, the watersheds and all sorts of crazy stuff, um, which isn't necessarily 
productive or keep people employed. So uh, one of the places to find out about that, and it's kind of tough because it's actually yet the only accurate numbers we have are what was the timber sales the year before. And it's only when we've been in actual harvest because um, when we were getting secure rural schools money that was in excess of timber harvest, if we elected to get the secure rural schools money, the county doesn't have any real counting of what the timber sales were. You'd have to get that through the Forest Service. But this upcoming year, um, we're back to actual harvest dollars from the Forest Service. Those monies come into our road fund. They're specifically supposed to be for counties to build roads to access the forest. So if you go to our county road fund budget, you'll actually see federal revenues in there of about, we're estimating will be about $800,000 this upcoming budget year. The FY, it just started on July 1st for FY 16 and 17. And that is far, 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 far below what we used to get 30 years ago uh, in our road fund and is nowhere close to being um, make up the impacts of, um, you know, providing access and policing to the U.S. Forest Service lands within Lane County. So, yes, we're getting 25% of about half of what they're harvesting. What they're harvesting now is, is meager, and almost all of their harvest right now are thinnings. They're not doing any any uh, regeneration harvesting hardly at all on, on the Saisa National Forest. So if you want to look and find that number, um, and I just know it because I remember talking about it during the budget process, was is a little bit in excess of $800,000, but it would be in our budget document under road fund and under revenue. And if you look for federal revenues, uh, it should show up there. And what we're spending it on is maintaining your roads, uh, which is um, about a 20-some million dollar effort every year. So you can imagine 800000 doesn't get us very far out of 20, $24 million what we spend on, on maintaining um, our existing road system. Everything from keeping the uh, shoulders mowed so they don't get tall grass that you can't see uh, the deer approaching the road and, or catching fire and, and burning half the county down to, uh, you know, keeping the culverts clear and the bridges uh, safe in the winter storm systems and plowing the, the, the passes in the wintertime to uh, all the chip sealing stuff we do to maintain the actual asphalt services. Um, it's not a cheap thing. We have $6 billion worth of a road system in Lane County, and we're only spending about $24 million maintaining it, and of that, only about Three million is capital improvements. So we are we are not spending anywhere near enough money to renew and replace that road system before it actually is past its useful life. So we're we're heading down a very bad uh, um, trend in in road funding in that we're we're going to build in a, a unfunded um, maintenance. Uh, and capital improvement uh, liability in our road system that's just going to continue to grow uh, over the next 10 years or so uh, if something doesn't change in, in either either U.S. Forest Service um, timber practices, because that's what goes into our road fund, and also state and federal uh, highway funding, which is the other major sources of our uh, road fund monies, because we do, you know, we we depend on the state gas tax for a good portion of our road our road maintenance uh, dollars. So I hope I answered that question for Terry about um, the U.S. Forest Service. Um, and and it's interesting because the Indian you know we did a show on the Indian Creek landscape plan here. I brought in the guy from uh, um, Forest Access for All, uh, which is an organization out of Eastern Oregon that's trying to maintain. Um, public access to public lands out there and uh, you know they're trying to close off a bunch of um, forest roads out in, in the Wallawa National Forest and uh, several others out there and, and uh, he talked about how they've been successful in battling them and, and gave some hints on how to, to keep battling this Indian Creek um, landscape plan which is calling for the closure and and not just the closure but the actual destruction of roads 
that are already already in place by the Forest Service system. So they're actually going to spend money destroying roads that allow the public to get access to our public lands. And that's what they're going to use that stewardship harvest money for. So there you go. They're going to take money out of our roads, destroy roads that allow public access to public lands by stewardship harvest money. That's your tax dollars at work here in Lane County by the federal government. And if that doesn't get you angry, then we can go back to talking about Hillary Clinton (laughs) and her emails. Or you can just give us a call at 646-721-9887. And this is a free-for-all day, so you can talk about anything you want. Just press 1 to uh, let Robin know you want to get on the air, and we can talk live. Or you can email me like uh, Terry did and uh, at talk at krbnradio.net, and we'll read your email here and try and answer your questions or uh, get to it. And uh, you can email me between shows, too, if you have questions, and we'll address those. But uh, definitely uh, lots to talk about. In fact, I've been in the news a little bit lately. Um, You know, the Registered Guard ran a story last week which was one of the most unfactual, inaccurate stories I've seen them run, and that's saying a lot for the Register Guard because I've caught them doing that several times. But it even came down to where the reporter said we voted on something and we hadn't. And he even gave a vote count of 4-1, which I want to to see that on, on on the tapes there. Um, and in fact, someone even uh, commented that they had watched the actual board meeting and they never saw any vote uh, or heard any vote. Um, so it's pretty interesting. But we were talking about the initiative process. And of course, if you're not from Oregon, uh, you may not be familiar, but we have probably the most liberal right to uh, initiate initi- uh, petitions of the government of any state in the union, where for almost any reason you can um, write an initiative petition, get it approved, you know, if it's going to be a statewide one by the Secretary of State's office or if it's local by the county clerk, get the signatures, get it on the ballot, get it voted on and enacted into law because basically, basically it's a citizen's right to write law uh, in the state order. And it's a good, actually a really good process, and I fully support it. In fact, I have almost been a chief petitioner twice in my lifetime on a couple initiatives, and I've been worked very closely on initiatives in the past in collecting signatures and supporting them and, and developing campaigns, uh, raising money to support or to, to oppose initiatives. Uh, so I've been very involved in the process. But, you know, one of the things that uh, the initiative in Oregon – needs to do is it has to at least be constitutional, you know, and at this point, everyone in Oregon tests initiatives for at least being uh, a single subject. You know, you can't write an initiative in Oregon that, that involves more than one subject. They want it to be a single subject. It's part of, it's, it's written into our constitution and established in court, court cases. So almost all county clerks, and the Secretary of State check initiatives to see if they're single subject. The second thing they have to do is they have to contain the full text of the law they wish to enact. So it can't be partial and then expected to fill in the blanks after it passes sort of type thing. So there's a full text test that most that everyone from the county clerks to the, the Secretary of State test for. The third thing is they should be um, constitutional, you know, something that the state or the locality that the initiative is for has the legal uh, ability to actually carry through. It's within their legal authority. Uh, and that's something that um, localities have not been tested for, but the Secretary of State's office actually has been for years. In fact, um, if you go to the Secretary of State's website and and go to elections and and uh, search um, for initiative petitions 
uh, you know, go down there and, and you search initiative petitions. And if you filter for um, ones that were, were, were disqualified, or uh, you get that they're about, oh, roughly one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten that she's rejected for 2016. And if you get down to the actual attorney general's opinion, because it, you know the secretary of state, you know, asked the attorney general to provide opinion to them on whether it, it meets the the constitutional procedural test. Um, they were there were several of these that were rejected not because they didn't meet single subject or full text, but because they were just patently unconstitutional, because they they presented a conflict of rights, and in particular, Initiative Petition 30 and Initiative Petition 55, which were both um, put forward by the same group, it was a 30 and then a retry at 55, was what they call right of local community self-government, which is this community rights um, push. And both of those were rejected for constitutional reasons, for going beyond um, the powers that were allowed under the state constitution. So what Lane County was looking at was, should we add to our process a look to see if it's actually legal? And some of this was prompted by some recent initiatives. Down in Josephine County, there was an initiative to ban uh, genetically modified crops from the county, the growing of any, any genetically modified crop. And before that was put on the ballot, the state actually passed a law prohibiting local rules over genetically modified crops, that they had to be done at the state level. So the initiative petition, before it ever got on the ballot, was actually preempted by the legislature as not being something that legally a county could do. But they only tested for single subject and for full text, it got, so it got to go out for signatures. The folks spent all sorts of time and money collecting their signatures or paid signature gatherers. The county then had to spend money verifying all those signatures, which, you know, that's a pretty extensive process. The way they had enough signatures to qualify for the ballot, it qualified for the ballot, <clears throat> and the county had to run an election for it. Uh, the pro and the con sides down there spent $1.3 million in campaign financing on the yes or no on the question. The ballot initiative did pass and shortly thereafter was taken to court. Now, mind you, once it passes, it becomes the county's law. So the county had to defend the law in court at their cost. And of course, the court overturned the law as being illegal and not something the county could legally do. And, and the phrase for that in the Oregon Constitution, and particularly with a home rule county, which Lane County is, is it was not a matter of county concern. And what we were looking at is whether or not we should be able to look at initiative petitions and decide whether they were a matter of county concern. And in addition to that, um, providing uh, the process that is currently in place for um, single subject or full text um, denials, there's an appeal to the court system. So the, the county clerk and our, our county council wouldn't be the last word on this. If somebody didn't agree with their assessment that what somebody was asking to gather signatures on was something that, that the county could not enforce because it was not legally within their authority, um, they could always then appeal that to the court and the court would make a very quick decision on, on whether they agreed with the county or not. Uh, that's the current process that's in place right now. And in fact, um, the local community rights initiative uh, was actually denied by our um, county clerk and county council uh, back in 2014. And those folks, the, the actual uh, petitioners um, chief petitioners took that decision to court. The court upheld our denial. So they rewrote it based on the reasons why it was denied to correct what we felt were the errors and resubmitted it. We actually approved it for, for the ballot 
after they after they rewrote it. So it wasn't like their right to petition was denied. They just had gone beyond um, their, their first attempt wrapped in too many subjects. And so we they rewrote it to be much more uh, clearly in a narrow subject, and it was approved. But we did not look at, it, was it something that we could actually enforce? Because uh, So they're out collecting signatures right now on that, and the Secretary of State's office and the Attorney General have already come down with an opinion, at least on a statewide version, it's unconstitutional. And I don't think anyone's taken those decisions to the courts, which they can do it on, for the Secretary of State also, is take it into court and get the court to, to look at whether they made the right decision. So we weren't really looking to take away rights a petition and all that stuff, but if you had read the headlines and some of the, the article in the Register Guard, you'd have thought that we had already decided and voted for one basically to block the initiative petition process and deny people their rights to petition. Um, and it was just one of the worst written articles I've ever seen um, and, and probably uh, hit a new low for, for the Register Guard, in my opinion. But uh, if you want to talk about that, and, and I can answer some questions about, you know, the current process we have, uh, what we were considering, and, and actually all we did in that meeting was authorize staff to do research and bring us back al alternatives, which could be a recommendation to do nothing, <laughs> um, but we'll, we'll see what happens with that. And, and again, if they do come back and we decide to move it forward, there's still also a public hearing process we would have to go through. and. Even if we decided to adopt it, uh, an ordinance amending our code, that can be referred to the voters by the by the citizens too, uh, here in Oregon. So uh, we could be voting on a, on a uh, referendum about whether or not we should look at initiative petitions to see if they're constitutional uh, before they go on the ballot, rather than after they get passed. Um, so an interesting subject. Uh, I, I consider you know, the initiative process kind of sacred, and what I don't like is when it's being used um, for reasons other than what it was designed for, which was the citizen's right to enact law going around the government. You know, when you can't quite get the government to do what you want to do, they can actually go out and write a law. And if you're intentionally and knowingly putting something forward that is not within the power of the government you're writing the initiative for. Like if you were writing one in this for the city of Eugene voters to vote on, and it was telling the city of Springfield what to do, that's a waste of Eugene's time. Likewise, we wouldn't want a ballot measure to waste our county's taxpayers' money that was telling the city of Eugene what to do within its boundaries that was a city power and not a county power. And that's kind of all we were wanting to do was try and have a little bit of a test to say, does this initiative actually deal with something that we have the legal authority over? So you want to talk to me about that? Again, it's 646-721-9887. And just press 1 if you want to get in on the conversation. And again, you can send us email at talk at krbnradio.net. And of course, we can talk about you know last week's guest, and and uh, uh, that was um, Rob Beauvais, and we had a discussion about pot taxes and a little bit about pot land use laws too. Um, you know, and we can talk about those things, or you know, I understand that Lane Apex sent another letter out with their bills about our uh, the potential changes to our. Um, waste management system that a, that a uh, consultant um, put forward as possible cost-saving initiatives uh, that we hired to look at for efficiencies in our system. And uh, just that report, not even any decisions been made yet, no public input's been taken yet, generated these, these, these notices by Lane Apex uh, to their uh, folks. So if you want to talk about our, our waste management system and transfer stations and how that whole system gets paid for because it actually does not get any tax money to it. It's all paid for by the fees that are charged for us to collect the, the, the waste, that what they refer to as tipping fees. 
uh, that's the per ton amount that the haulers pay us or what you pay for uh, when you come to the the, uh, the transfer station and actually dump a load on your own, um, that's all that funds that system. There's no tax money that goes in there. It's self-funded. Uh, it's what they call an enterprise fund. Or, you know, better yet, you know, I, I'm out here in beautiful downtown Elmira, Oregon, and uh, we've got something going on this weekend. And if you don't know what that is, uh, you must not be from around here. Um, we have the Oregon Country Fair. And that's uh, coming up on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And for those of you that don't know about this, it's the uh, largest, I think, just about countercultural gathering that's been going on since the late 60s um, continuously. I think uh, I think they're on 43 years or something like that. Uh, and it's, it's a pretty big event out here. And it brings about 15,000 people a day to the fair along with uh, about 5,000 other um, employees and, and hanger-ons and all that stuff. So it takes our our little uh, village here of Venita and Elmira, which is about maybe 6,000 people, and just about, uh, you know, triples and maybe a little bit more the, the population out here. So needless to say, getting around this weekend by automobile, yeah, not so easy. <laughs> But if you want to go and, 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 and do some major people watching, go to the country fair. Uh, you know, it's it it's a it's actually a really great event. You know, they put on a good event. It's well run. You know, it's actually not that bad of traffic if you follow the rules and all that stuff. One, you can take the bus out from town. They've got um, a charter um the transit buses that run a, a loop from in, in Eugene out to the country fair and back. Uh, that way you don't have to worry about parking and all that stuff. It's pretty easy. Um, and, and, and if you have a little bit too much to drink while you're at the fair or whatever, you know, you, you're fine there too. Um, but you, you, you know, the fair is a, a pretty interesting event. They got some of the best artisans, you know, when you talk about some of the, the they actually have a, a, a judging panel, to get to qualify to be a vendor at the fair is a pretty tough thing. So it's adjudicated. So they don't let just any old, you know, macrame bead weaver, you know, in there. They have true artists that are selling their wares there. So if you go and look at the artists, spectacular. They have several stages with live performances. They get some great bands there. So if you're a music fan, it's a great place to go. And the, the food, vendors are incredible. So good art, good music, great food. But if you're going to bring small kids, just be aware that you may see topless females and maybe men walking around in G-strings with their butt cheeks hanging out. Um, it is counterculture. So a little bit of nudity goes a long way uh, sometimes. But <laughs> It, it, it's it's rather interesting people watching. Uh, there's lots of costumes and stuff like that. Uh, it's like stepping back into the 60s. Um, you know, lots of tie-dye, lots of beads, um, long hair. It's kind of fun. It's, it's a good time. But for some of us that live around here, the, the extra traffic can be a little bit of a hassle. But, you know, we've learned to live with it. It only happens once a year, one weekend a year. Um, so come on out for the Oregon Country Fair. And speaking of pot, um, <laughs> we also talk pot taxes. So, you know, again, if you want to get in on the conversation, we got about 10 minutes left here, 646-721-9887. Just press 1 if you want to get in on the conversation. And uh, we can wrap it all the way back around, to, you, know, if, you know, speaking of the Country Fair, which, you know, kind of has a, uh, reputation for a fair amount of uh, drug use that kind of circulates around it, although they've really got that under control in the last 10 years where it isn't quite as bad as what, it, what its reputation is. Um, we can go from there to, you know, I didn't inhale, uh, which was, you know, 
Bill Clinton's famous statement when he was asked if he ever smoked pot, I think was it, it wasn't that in an MTV interview where he was also asked boxers or, or briefs. Um, but, uh, you know, he didn't inhale and his wife never really, uh, intended to expose classified information, uh, to our enemies, but, uh, she just recklessly did. Um, and that's not really gross negligence. And uh, I don't know. I need an attorney to, to kind of define, you know, maybe if there's an attorney listening out there, if you could, if you could define uh, recklessness with gross negligence and try and uh, tell me where the, the dividing line is between those two, I'd really like to know. Um, because that's the difference between a criminal felony and being let off the hook as far as her emails go. And, and frankly, uh, if it was you and I that did this and not somebody that had the last name of Clinton, we'd be getting the frog march into a federal courthouse right now to be arraigned on, on charges and, and uh, processed and, you know, released pending bail, um, you know, waiting for a bail hearing, because uh, I tell you what, what James Comey read off uh, in his statement in the first, you know, half, first 90% of his statement, which was basically a, a, what, what they found was clearly, I think, uh, uh, gross negligence at, at the minimum, which qualifies as a felony. You, you don't get to the level of having a security clearance without understanding that. In fact, I had another Facebook friend who uh, served in the military in an intelligence portion of the military branch that he served for, um, was just absolutely flabbergasted by the, by the FBI's decision. Because, you know, as someone that handled classified information and had a top clearance, um, it was beaten into you. And when he left the service, it was beaten into him that he was liable for breaches of saying anything about anything that was that he knew was classified to anyone after leaving the service. For 70 years, he was liable. So sometime when he gets into his late 70s or early 80s, he gets dementia and starts spouting classified information, he can still be liable. So I, I don't get how anyone that, that has a clearance and had got, gone through what it takes to get a clearance could knowingly, could, could unknowingly have put classified information in a system that was not part of a protected classified system like Hillary Clinton did. But, you know, it's just not going to be something that's going to ever happen. I never really, you know, I personally never expected charges to be filed. And we just have to look at the history of the Clintons and what they've skated through through the years, whether it's the Rose billing, um, Rose law form billing records that disappeared and magically reappeared, or it's... uh, Sandy Pants Burglar, or um, it's, you know, Bill Clinton, and I I did not have sex with that woman. You know, it just is uh, one of those things where you just kind of shake your head, and, and it really gives you the feeling that the rule of law has fallen apart in America. And there's two... Yeah, Rob. Um... If I understand it correctly, the FBI only gave a recommendation. They're not actually the ones that – it's the AG, the attorney general, is the one that actually can make, has to make the decision whether or not to bring charges. Is that correct? Yeah, but after he publicly stated that he doesn't think anyone would – any prosecutor would charge this, how, how much chance do you think that the AG's office is going to take this up? Probably almost zero, especially a couple of months back when Hillary came right out and said that when she was asked about the emails and, and about going to jail, and she said point blank, 
I'm not going to jail, get that thought out of your head. I mean, to, to me, this all rings of, of well, something wrong. Yeah. Well, it, as I was beginning to say, there's there's two classes of citizens in this country. There, there's the, the elite connected to the government uh, crony class of citizens that, that can break the law basically at will and thumb their nose at the rest of us. And then there's the rest of us that, you know, are expected to, to obey the, obey the law. Um, I, you know, I personally am, you know, could break the law anytime accidentally. You know, I, I'm a public official in Oregon and there's several things that I have as a public official, I have to be careful of. I have to be careful of public meetings laws. I have to be careful of all the public records laws. I have to be careful of all the government ethics laws in Oregon. And it's pretty easy to break one of those unknowingly without thinking. But I would still be held liable because my last name's not Clinton and I'm not connected with the current administration. You know, I can't have my live-in girlfriend, uh, first lady of Oregon, on the payroll uh, of of an agency and lobbying that same agency at the same time, you know, <laughs> and get away with it. And get away with it. Well, assuming that nothing comes of this, wouldn't that, in a sense, even though it hasn't gone to court, wouldn't that, in a sense, be setting a precedence for any similar cases that would come up in the future? I don't know if it doesn't really set, you know, the interesting thing is um, precedent is something that doesn't get set by uh, whether or not you choose to uh, pursue a charge or not. President gets set actually at the appeals court level. Even even a um, at, at the state court level, it's the district court at, at the, um, I mean, circuit court at the um, federal level, it's the district court. Um, if those courts make a decision, they don't really set precedent. They might be something you could refer to, but it's not precedent setting. If you if that gets appealed to the appeals court, you know, either federal or state, and that court makes a ruling, that's considered precedent setting, where you can actually go in in, an, in a future court case and argue that that court set precedent. Unless it was appealed, that decision was appealed to the Supreme Court. If it was never appealed, it's president setting. If it was appealed, upheld, or not upheld, then it's the Supreme Court that sets president. So you know, one of the things I've learned in having to deal with a lot of lawsuits at, at the county is what sets president, what doesn't. And his decision is not president setting in law. You know, it's kind of president setting as, you know, the first time anyone's ever done that. But... Um, it, it's not something that it will have to be followed by the next FBI director or future um, prosecutors or whatever. So hopefully we might be able to get past this with a change of administration. I think this just speaks to the fact that we do need some changes at the federal level and state level. Well, especially when after um, this announcement and the speech by Hillary and Obama, and then they both uh, trot away on the down the yellow brick road into Air Force One, all buddy buddy alike. It's and people are still just kind of going, well, you know, I'm tired of hearing all of this. Let's move on instead of looking at the big picture of all of this. And as even the FBI director pointed out, that there's a very good chance that some of these emails got into our enemy's hands. Yeah. And I, you know, I have yet to hear what impact that's had on some of the agencies that may have been exposed. You know, what chaos has that caused now that they realize that, you know, whatever subject Hillary had on that email server, whatever top secret information that might've been exposed, what chaos is that causing some, program now to try and, uh, you know, re, re, redo themselves to be, you know, classified again and, and, and protect that information and, and, and deal with the, the, the fallout from that. 
And that's, you know, that's the whole reason there's such a issue with classified information and why why that 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 law that law that makes it a crime to expose it is is a fel a criminal felony because of the, the fallout from having exposed it, either intentionally or unintentionally through gross negligence. Well, wouldn't that also set a, uh, a risk of, say, a foreign country getting a hold of those emails and finding some sensitive documentation and Hillary gets elected, that the foreign country says, uh, we have copies of these uh, emails that didn't go public, and unless you do what we say, we're going to release them. Yeah, you know, I kind of wonder what was in some of those non-work emails that a, that a foreign country could use. You know, th- that was you know one of the things is she only turned over the the quote work emails, and they only mentioned the work emails they found that had been deleted or were in some of the. I forget what he called it, the the uh, the, the free space on the disk or whatever he, he was the term he was u- using in the in the press conference. Um, but it, it's just uh, you know that whole thing. You know there could be information abounding there where she might have been you know personally talking with Bill or personally talking with Huma or somebody about something that would would have been very embarrassing if made public. And now could actually be in the hands of the Russians or, you know, the hands of the Iranians. Who knows? Maybe that's how the Iranians got the uh, the nuclear deal and the release of their assets. They got some Hillary Clinton email that exposed something on Obama and used it to get Obama. <laughs> Who knows? I mean, look I mean, at that. When that, you that, when you delete a file on a computer. It doesn't delete the file. All it does is it just sets that space as available in the directory so the directory can overwrite it. Yeah. It's still there unless you go in with some software or physically um, um, take the drive apart and erase it. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, uh, it's amazing that somebody in this day and age could be so unknowing about electronic data and how it works. But, you know, all I can say is the only reason she set up that server was to keep her, keep from public record information she didn't want to be public record that probably should have been. Where she'd be able to correspond freely about stuff and know that it wasn't wasn't going to be available um, in the future for historians to see. And you just kind of wonder what was it she was trying to hide from everybody? And and then that leads to the whole Clinton Family Foundation and donations from foreign governments and the millions of dollars, um, speaking fees and everything else. You know, we still haven't heard the whole thing there. But that really leads us to that just whole culture um, in 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 higher government of of we don't really have to follow the law. Well, speaking of real quick here, since we're almost out of time, Jay, you being a commissioner, I, I don't know how much difference the rules are, but are you allowed as a commissioner? Because uh, you get a salary, right, for being commissioner? Yeah, yeah. Are you allowed to go out and give speeches and do other stuff and make tons of extra? Uh, no, not really. There's very uh, strict limits on that under government ethics laws. So, and if we do, it's all got to be reported um, very clearly. Um, and in fact, I avoid doing it because the reporting is so onerous. So, I don't work anywhere outside uh, other than I, I work with my wife's business a little bit. But that that's it. So, very strict reporting rules in, in Oregon for government ethics, particularly for local government officials, but they exempted the state legislature from a lot of them. <laughs> like, they're they're exempt from all the public meetings laws they expect us to obey, so it's them and then it's us. You know, those are the rules for them, those are the rules for us. But that's about it for the Bo's Nose Show tonight, and uh, 
Thank you for listening. Hopefully you'll be back next week. I'm going to have on Bob Snowden, and we're going to talk a little bit about property rights and liberty and a few other things. So it should be a good show. So that's it for the Bo's Nose Show. Good night. <laughs>